There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in Tampa Ranch, We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, 27-year veteran of the NYPD. And with me tonight is retired NYPD Sergeant and Professor Mike Geary from Albertus Magnus uh, College in New Haven, Connecticut. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. Listen, folks, it's so, it's sort of like, a happy day, and at the same time, a, a somber day. And what we, we all know what happened, that there was an arrest early this morning, apparently, of this individual you see on the screen. His name is Brian Koberger, and he's being charged with the murder of the, the four Idaho students. Uh, and it's... You know, it's just an amazing thing because when I think back, uh, there's the four Idaho students, Ethan Chapin, Zaina Canodal, Madison Mogan, and Kaylee Gonsalves. When I think back at the, the ebbs and flows and the highs and the lows of this case, it seemed like once this case went beyond the 48 hours, the media and everyone was just so expected an arrest they wanted immediate gratification. And as we know, uh, and as I know, as being a homicide investigator, this never happens immediately. And this was a very difficult case. And of course, we focused upon the Moscow police and the small department hasn't had a murder since uh, over seven years ago. And they did everything right in regards to requesting the help that they needed. He got the Idaho State Police on board right away. They got the FBI on board right away. But still, the criticism lingered. I myself, in the last few days, had doubts that they were uh, going in the right direction. And shame on me. They proved me wrong. And I'm glad they proved me wrong because now, not that this at all gives closure to anyone. This was, was and is a horrific crime. That'll never ever be forgotten in the town of Moscow, Idaho. The University of Idaho, the families, the, the, the people that consider themselves vandals, that's what the uh, mascot is of, of the University of Idaho. And all the people that this affected, you know, people that were falsely accused, you know. But with the arrest of Brian Kohlberger, we have a million questions. And there was a press conference today, and I'll play a little bit of it later. But And I knew, I knew ahead of time they weren't going to answer any of our questions. The number one question everyone has is why. What was the motive to this? Why did this guy kill four students with a knife? What, that type of angle, why did he do this? And then when we see who he is, his demeanor, the fact that he's never been arrested before. He's never taken an arrest before. 
but graduates day one to a quadruple murder? Hard to understand, right? We had every type of talking head on this case that came out of the woodwork, including me, all over the place on TV stations. Every FBI behavioral and analyst that ever attended Quantico, you know, the, the camp at Quantico, the FBI school, behavioral analysis school, they came out of the woodwork and all had their different theories. Look, this, this case, every single one to a one said, this is a man. There's no doubt that this is a man. Number two, he's big and he's strong. I don't know the size of uh, Brian Kohlberger, but he, he appears to be uh, a big guy from what I could see from his arrest photo. But the other things about him, the fact that he's a PhD candidate in criminal justice, this is the things that, you know, silence of the lambs type information and why it feeds on itself, what that type of thing is made from is that how do we predict what is in this guy's background that made him do something like this when he's never has no criminal history whatsoever? Mike, I've been talking for a while, so I'm going to toss it to you. Your thoughts? I think the hardest part for the uh, for the public to understand is is motive. Why? You, you hit upon it. Why? Everybody wants to understand how could this horrific crime happen? What would motivate you know uh, Mr. Kohlberg to do this sort of thing? Um, is it something that he heard that they said to him? How did they ever interacted with him? And what kind of interactions do they have with him? What motivated him personally to do this sort of thing. Um, everybody wants to know that. That's the biggest um, the piece of missing piece of information that we have because people want to be able to understand because if you don't have that sort of motive, even if you think it's far, bizarre, ridiculous, whatever you might think, um, it's what motivated that person. And that's the last piece of the puzzle. Until we have that, um, this, it, it's missing. It's an incomplete puzzle. And we're not going to know that for at least, uh, partly we're not going to know that until uh, next week when all the court documents are unsealed or also if he makes a public statement after he has had, you know, a consultation with a lawyer. It's going to take a while. Uh, I've counseled uh, patients in this and from the time, from the very beginning, we've all have because from a police perspective, this actually, the timeline from the time that the murders were committed to today is not a long timeline at all. Uh, for the public, it is. And we understand the frustration that um, the news media has, you know, experienced and expressed. But um, it will probably all start to really come together once he, he through his attorney, there's a statement or the uh, uh, arrest warrant affidavit is unsealed probably the middle of next week, and then we'll have that answer. You know, Mike, one of the things I also want, I really need to say is that I congratulate the Moscow police. They're fabulous. The, the FBI, uh, the Idaho State Police, oh, no, uh, the Fugitive Enforcement Division that hunted this guy down. They used a strategy that the public and the media was unaware of. A, they kept their mouth shut, and that was no easy thing. No, because not at all. the media was going after them every single day. Oh, you're not telling us enough. The families of the victims. And you can understand why they wanted to be kept in the loop. But strategy-wise, what the Moscow police did, the FBI, the Idaho State Police, 
It was the correct strategy because now they have an arrest and they didn't show their hand to the attorney for um, Brian Kohlberg. So you know, I just um, we have another guest with us tonight, and I thought it would be great to have uh, two experts. And I have uh, from St. Thomas University in Miami, Florida, Dr. Debbie Goodman. Dr. Goodman, welcome. Thank you so much, Sergeant Bill. Pleasure, Hello. Professor Geary. And Hello, Doctor. Viewers, what a big day, right, in our case and in our field. So thank you for the privilege and pleasure, as always, of joining the conversation. The pleasure is all ours, Dr. Debbie. Um, I just wanted to give you a chance to uh, put your feelings forth on what today means and uh, wh where we're going forward with this case. Sure. Well, first, if I may, Sergeant Bill and, and Professor Geary, just to thank with an enormity of, of heartfelt sincerity and genuineness our, our local, state, and federal officers, agents, detectives, investigators, everybody who with such uh, passion and persistence and perseverance just worked and worked every day, every night for, for six weeks to ensure that we would have not only a suspect, but the right suspect in custody. And, and hence that, that level of talent, skill, and knowledge that our field is all about. And I know there had been discussion perhaps about, and, and I get a lot of um, you know emails and, and such to, to LinkedIn, and I do reply back, by the way, for, for those who want to follow, connect, and such about, well, Dr. Debbie, is this case going cold? Of course not. Never was there a thought, at least in my mind as a criminologist, that it would go cold. Why? Because really this was a very complex and complicated case. So although everybody involved in our field would have wanted, you know, the 48 hours uh, to arrest or the seven to 10 days, could it happen? It could happen, but in circumstances and scenarios and crime scenes that would be much different than what we actually had here. Certainly if there were a, a video pointed to the front door or we had the exterior of the house lit up like a football stadium or there were vid, uh, you know, witnesses standing by to give a description or identify you know, who this person looked like and the clothing and, and on and on. So I just want to start there, if I may. And, and certainly I hope on, on the victimology side, because I'm always very mindful and aware of, of what this is. You know, we always talk about the primary, secondary, tertiary victimization. Sadly, of course, we know our, our four precious decedents are no longer, but yet that ripple effect to the parents and the direct families, it will forever be just a massive significant void, but at least for today, hopefully there is some level of relief and response that our men and women of our field are again with such compassion, devotion, dedication, that they made the right decision. You know, I was asked earlier today, well, uh, could, could there be others? Could there be others? Well, you know, we heard from the chief, we heard from the director, and we have to applaud what has happened here. Now, again, there's a lot that's not being said, but as we know in our field, that's okay. We don't need to know every level and layer of this at the moment. 
What we know is that this individual, and by the way, you know, Sergeant Bill, you know this about me, but Professor Geary and the viewers, I don't like to use the name of the individual. Why? Because it gives them some sense of grandiosity or spotlight or fame. And we want nothing at all to do with that. This person will go through our criminal justice system. I believe the penalties will be swift, severe, and certain. And as a criminologist thus far from what we know, it's very aligned with first degree murder times four, planning, premeditation, willful, with malice, plus the burglary. You know, Absolutely. another question I received an email earlier. Well, you know, Dr. Debbie, is this, are there mitigating conditions? Are there more aggravating versus mitigating? I mean, what is his attorney going to say about him to mitigate this case? What could be said? There'll be mental health uh, testing and acuity checks, but let's remember too, and our, and our viewers know this, and we'll gently remind that insanity just based on data analytics is so rare in our field, so rare. The, the percentages and percentiles are less than 2% of, of criminal cases that go through our system that actually result in an insanity. Because to be insane, the person didn't know what he was doing. He didn't know what he was doing is wrong. And I do not believe that that's what we have here. I believe we are very strong on the aggravating conditions for decedents, planning with purpose, using the fixed blade knife. And it's going to be, again, an interesting day by day of what becomes the revelation to all of us when law enforcement officials will reveal it. But well, it's not Dr. Debbie, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about... Uh a lot of people are, well, I just want to show, this was the scene. Uh, I'm going to take us off the screen. This was the scene today of law enforcement responding to the address in Pennsylvania and taking him down at, I, I think it was 0300, which is 3 a.m. They meticulously, with fugitive enforcement, uh, with the uh, Pennsylvania State Police, with the Moscow Police, they were able to put handcuffs on this guy. There's not a lot about the apprehension, but we understand us, all of us in law enforcement who have went after and gone after murderers in the middle of the night, that it's not for the faint-hearted, you know? And we know what it's like pulling someone out of their bed at four in the morning, not knowing if they have a gun under their pillow, and knowing that, they, in this case, he already killed four people, or at least that's what he's going to be charged with. So this is the scene in, uh, in Pennsylvania. New video straight from Pennsylvania at what appears to be the scene of an investigative search. All this comes just hours after a suspect is finally arrested in connection to the University of Idaho quadruple murders. In the video, you can see a large response from local TV stations hoping to get a glimpse at all the action. The video appears to be shot in or near the Indian Mountain Lake gated community. Now, we're still working to learn more about this search and the suspect, but what we know so far is 28-year-old Brian Christopher Koberger was arrested in Pennsylvania Friday morning in connection to the murders. Koberger is a PhD candidate at Washington State University in criminal justice and criminology. His campus in Pullman, Washington is about 15 minutes away from Moscow, Idaho. Now, we're working to get more details about this developing story, and we'll bring you the latest information we have it. Reporting for Long Crime Network, I'm Sierra Gillespie.
So, folks, one of the things that I want everyone to know is right away going to this location, they need at least three search warrants. They need a search warrant for his car. They need a search warrant for the house he's staying in. And right away, of course, they need a search warrant for his cell phone. So right away, they have to be prepared with these right away. But his cell phone is going to tell a story that may put his ass in the electric chair if they still had it. Now they have <laughs> they have the injection. But that's going to tell a story. The other thing is people in the chat keep talking about, could it be that they had a match on his DNA? We pretty much know that they didn't have a match in CODIS. However, if they were on him for four days, could he have spit in the street? Could he have drank a cup and discarded the cup? Could he have smoked a cigarette? Could he have gone into a restaurant? And they could have surreptitiously, and I love that word, shows I went to college once. They could have surreptitiously obtained his DNA and matched it to the DNA in the crime scene, and boom, he's done right there, right? So no one is telling us that, but I'm just giving that as a possibility. Professor Mike, what do you think about that? Well, I think that... Um since they were washing them for four days, uh, about four days, and they were just waiting for that warrant, the FBI was tracking them across the country. Um, they they absolutely got the uh, search warrant based on DNA. I'm sure when they unseal the affidavit next week, you will see that the uh, that there was gonna there was a match between DNA either in his apartment in uh, his graduate apartment or in uh, through separate surreptitiously obtaining his DNA uh, on the trail. Um, can I just mention- Mike, one? I think I'm gonna copyright that word because I'm tired of people using it and not giving me credit, you know? <laughs> it's an unusual word. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, I do wanna say with Dr. Goodman mentioned about aggravating and mitigating circumstances, um, she hit it right on the head. Uh, Idaho is a death penalty state. And when you talk about a possibility of the death penalty being uh, being a cap this being a capital case, um, that will factor into whatever the DNA, uh, the defense comes up with uh, in terms of strat defense strategy, um, and killing more than one person at a time is an aggravating factor in a in a capital case. So you you doctor you hit it right on. Thank you and and Professor Mike back to you and. I agree too with what both of you said and, and surreptitiously, right? Sergeant Bill, every time we're together, there's a good word. Last time we were together, it was absolute. We didn't want to say anything was absolute until we had somebody in custody. So as a professor, I, I like that word too. But but it is true, right, Professor Mike, Sergeant Bill, that what's going to be revealed about this individual is going to, I think, be more common than not. So what do I mean by that? What I mean is that, first of all, his age, 18 to, to 30 is what was one of my original thoughts. Why? Because, and, and Sergeant Bill, as always, you know, all the shows are amazing. And you spoke about the victimology on several of the shows. And for me, that's always going to be an important match who our victims are and potentially who the killer is and how do they intersect and how do they interact? Well, again, we don't know the finite details yet, but we do know that because all four of whom are, are decedents, uh, you know, are 20, 21, he's 28. Now he did not go to the college in which they attended, but he's a college student. And, you know, the whole thing about the criminology major, that raises an eyebrow. Why? Because I can at least tell you this, that in my 
25 rounding the corner next year, 26 year career of, of having the pleasure and the privilege of, of teaching criminology, criminal justice, and, and so many topics therein that our students who major in these fields have the highest level of, of honor and integrity and diligence and devotion to really make a difference in our field and, and join entities such as the FBI and DEA, Customs, Marshals, Secret Service, Homeland Security, and so forth. And I think this whole piece, because I've been asked that a few times today, well, because he was a criminology major, does that mean, Dr. Debbie, that he had criminal intent? And I don't want to say it that way. I don't believe so, because at least after 26 years and thousands of students who are today's major contributors in our field of, of crime, law, and justice, um, I think this individual was scholastic, yes, and back to the commonality. See, that's not uncommon, right? As we know about the serial murderers and mass murderers, they do tend to have above average intellect. So for me, that's not necessarily something of an irregular. But uh, Sergeant Bill, as you mentioned, you know, the, the phone and the stories that will be told, I think that whole revelation is going to be, and back to Professor Mike, really, again, things that will heighten the aggravating conditions too, that he had the intent, he had the purpose, he planned it, it was premeditated, he selected these victims. Now, again, we don't know why, but we do recall Sergeant Bill, in a different conversation, we spoke about the possibility here, and I still feel strongly, the fan to the fantasy to the fanatic. I think this connectivity between this individual and our victims may have originated, manifested in some social media platform. Again, could it have been TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, whatever. But he had a direct interest in somebody or more than somebody in this uh, victimization choice. Absolutely. A magical Mary, thank you for the 499 Super Chat. We don't know, but I hope his DNA came from under the nails of the victims. Wouldn't that be poetic justice, that the fighting back of these victims uncovered the piece of evidence that identified him? I don't know if that's true. I would find that to be wonderful also. Mary Callahan, thank you for the 999 Super Chat. Uh, I think you might mean BTK was a security guard at Pleasant Valley High School, fingerprints taken. Now, in certain states, I don't know if it's all states, in New York, if you're going to be a security guard, you're licensed by the state, and yes, you must be fingerprinted. I don't know if that's the law. There's, some states have archaic laws and don't require that. A lot of things uh, after 9-11, uh, people upped their security game, their security licensing game and all of that. What I want to talk about now, though, is something called we, we stressed the victimology early on in this case. Now I'm going to stress something called the perpology, which simply means the study of the perp. Who is this guy? Sure. We got to study his background. Where has he been? Where has he gone? Let's talk to where he grew up. Let's talk to his high school teachers. Let's talk to everyone in his town in Pennsylvania. Let's talk to his college professors. He went to uh, DeSalle University, a Catholic college, to get his undergrad and his MS degree. That was in Pennsylvania. Let's talk to all those people. Now let's bring it closer to Moscow. I want to know, has he ever been in that house? Do the students in those fraternities know this guy? Does Is he friends with the girls on Facebook? 
on TikTok, on Instagram. There's a good, again, when we talk about a case like this, the investigation is not over. It's just beginning. That's the perpology of this guy. I already told you I had a, a, a private investigator friend of mine run his criminal history. He's never been arrested before. That, for most people that were following this case, oh, I predict he's a long, no, it doesn't always happen like that, you know? And, you know, just not with any of the I told you so. I made some predictions in this case that were totally not accurate. And I admit that. Look, we all make, we all get a gut feeling. Some of you guys had some stuff so off the wall and I did, I paid no attention to it. And, you know, you can't predict everything correctly. Look at all the um, FBI behavioral uh, analysts. Do you think they were all correct in this? You think they're all looking back now and saying, oh, hmm. I would have never thought of that. But they're human beings. They're using a science that is not an exact science to try to predict who this person is. I mentioned the search warrants. That's going to uncover stuff. But doing his backgrounding is going to uncover a lot of information about him. And just the bare fact of the detectives in Moscow and the FBI going to all of these fraternities. And do you know this guy? Voila. Oh, yeah, he used to come to all the party. And look, I don't know that. I'm saying that's a, a distinct possibility. Professor Mike. Yeah. One of the most interesting things I found since um, this all came about this morning when it made broke national news is the, is the timeline. Um, he graduated, I believe, in 2020 from DeSalle with the bachelor's degree. He graduated, I believe, in last May, uh, only eight months ago with a degree, a master's degree, and now he's a PhD student in, um, in the university, and uh, he's only 10 miles away or 15 miles away from, from the house where, the murder, where he killed those people. It is alleged that he, he committed these murders, and the timeline is very compact, um, which means that probably he did not run into these people maybe at, at a party, off campus or something, he might have first run into them online because I know several of the girls put a lot of information on Facebook. And so you have a very short timeline from, say, um, he probably arrived at his PhD residence, a graduate residence, probably in late August. And, and then uh, three months, 90 days later, it is alleged that he committed these murders. Very interesting timeline. And that's uh, which is going to be... Uh, when we find out the, the motive that will probably fill that in, like what happened within those 90 days? Was it Facebook, TikTok? Did he actually meet them physically in person and was rejected by them? Did he uh, develop a fascination? Uh, doctor, you hit it, you know, fan, fanatic, you know, that sort of thing. Um, did, he, did he come to that sort of uh, relationship with them in his, in his mind in the course of just simply, you know, 90 days? You know, I just wanted to say something quick, and I'll, Dr. Debbie, I'll let your response to uh, Professor Geary. I know you professors stick together, so I don't want to. <laughs> but, of course, one of the things in this case that I knew day one when they put it out was the white Elantra. And I knew that that was not just, oh, it's a witness that we're looking to pull in that was in the area. I knew that was the perpetrator's car. But it seemed like an unbelievably daunting task when you heard that there was 22,000 of them. 
in that area to identify the Hyundai Elantra that went by that night. Somehow they were able to, well, look, they made an arrest. They were able to do it. But the other thing is I'm, I'm looking at people in the chat. Oh, he, it's not that smart. He didn't get rid of the car. Well, he didn't think he was going to get caught. He fled to Pennsylvania. To him, that's like being in a foreign country as compared to Idaho, how far away that is. Look, in New York, guys do murders in Manhattan and they escape to the Bronx and they think they're home free, you know? Or they escape to Brooklyn. They're like, oh, how'd they find me in Brooklyn? You know, they're amazed. Oh, the police, they know Brooklyn? How'd they figure this out, you know? So this guy, even though he's he's intelligent, he's a PhD candidate, he probably thinks they're not going to find me. How did they, they'll never find that I live in Pennsylvania. So he drives his car home to there. That car, again, should be a treasure trove of evidence. I don't care if he cleaned that with ammonia or alcohol, whatever. There's going to probably be blood in that car, you know, victim's blood and his blood. They get luminol. That car is a huge piece of evidence. Okay, Dr. Debbie, sorry to interrupt you. Go no, ahead. no, no, just enjoying, obviously, the, the intellect of both of you and, and the sense and sensibility here of, of what's to come. But again, you know, the car is is major and, and the fact that it was identified and now here it is, the fact of the interior, we don't know yet, as well as the exterior. Uh, where's the knife, by the way? So, so therein lies something important. I was asked that question earlier today, and my opinion is that he has the knife. I do not think that this individual discarded the knife, and I'll tell you why. Because as we know, in our field, and when we study these high-profile cases of murder, double homicide, mass murder, mass shooting, serial murder, school-based, I mean, whatever you know, title or classification we want to put on this, individuals tend to have some level of sensory pleasure. So I think his sensory pleasure, of course, came with the selected weapon of using the knife. Why? Because we know in our field that even though the gun tends to be the weapon of choice with murders, but there's really a detachment and a level of being impersonal when the gun is used. But for me as a criminologist and, and perhaps, you know, I would welcome your thoughts too, and the viewers, is that when a knife is used, there is touch, there is contact, there is connection, just like other types of murders where it's not the gun and it's not the knife, but it's strangulation, it's smothering, it's choking, it's drowning, there's touch. So that's why I think, as, as both of you have said today and in preceding conversations, that this individual was some kind of an associate of either one or more of our victims. There's a possibility that he may have wanted to date one of the individuals or, or have a friendship. And maybe there was some level of communication on a social media platform wherein he got rejected or there was no response. And perhaps in his mind, no response is a response. So this level of, of rage and enrage and outrage that has been demonstrated here. And back to Professor Mike, I think, again, is absolutely in line mm -hmm. with what the prosecution is going to put forward here as, as a aggravating condition times four. And it is potentially a, a capital murder death penalty case. But at the very least, it has to be 
life in prison times four. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Marla Kay, thank you for the $10 super chat. Congrats to all arms of law enforcement who worked on this. You know, you never want to say I told you so, uh, but I would think that Chief Fry and uh, the captain uh, who was in, the, I, I, uh, as the name escapes me right now, that was in one of the bosses that was in charge of this investigation, they got to feel a tremendous amount of relief. Moscow police was beaten up by the national media, the international media. Oh, they should take the case from them. They should give the case to the FBI. They don't know what they're doing. They haven't had a homicide. Look, I had I had feelings like that also that they were inexperienced. That that did concern me also. So I can't sit here and host this show and act as if I'm innocent also. But they did get the proper help. And who knows if that was, of course, I... Of course, that helped lead to the arrest. But let's get back to the um, to the perpology, and but that's another word. Surreptitiously, perpology. They're called canonisms. All right, I'm gonna. <laughs> you I'm have gonna to coin those terms. <laughs> I'm gonna try. That's right. Exactly. Bill. <laughs> but the perpology, the study of the background of this guy, is so important, and that includes so many things. So many things. His his uh, teachers now. His area of study, criminology. I mean, what was he like? We need to speak to his professors. Most PhD candidates have an advisor. Let's go right to his advisor. Talk to him or her. What did this guy's, what was his behavior like? How was he as a student? His friends on campus. Does he have a girlfriend? You know, where is he living? There's another search warrant where, where he's living in, in, in Washington. Uh, Search warrant there. Does he have a locker somewhere? Is there a locker in the school? That could be where the murder weapon is. And Debbie, I happen to agree with you. Uh, excuse me, Dr. Debbie. Okay, I yeah. happen to agree with you. I think he keeps that knife. I think I so. I think there's somewhere you might, because he, even though he's, he, he's probably not a serial killer, he exhibits a lot of the behavioral attitudes of a serial killer. And one of the things I thought of also is why these search warrants are also so important. He may have taken a souvenir, a trophy, as they call it. And by that, I mean he may have taken an article of clothing of one of the girls, something belonging, because killers love to relive the crime. That's how they get off on it. So there's an important, another important reason for the search warrant. Evidence like that is, is just slam dunk evidence in a court of law. Professor Mike, go ahead. No, I agree. And Dr. Goodman mentioned it about the uh, the uh, keeping of the weapon. Uh, I we, Before we came on the air tonight, I just mentioned to Bill about the BTK killer in Kansas, sure. a criminal a criminal justice major. Yeah. And as a as I think he was a compliance officer in Wichita right. who had a little right. familiarity with police procedures. Mm -hmm. um, and he kept a lot of uh, trophies. Yeah. And I think if, you know, this the the article uh, the, the knife would be absolutely the first thing you should throw away, bury it, burn it, throw it in the river. But he wants to relive and be satisfied by that sometime in the future. And yes. so he would keep that. It would be the one of the worst things you could possibly do, but he probably would. And taking a trophy, absolutely. Taking a girl's driver's license or, or, or a picture or a lock of their hair. Sure. Uh, he might have done something like that. Um, uh, you know, 
that's the purpology yeah. uh, that you see that's very common. They'll do things. That's, a ten, that's 10 bucks, Mike, every time. <laughs> you- <laughs> I'll write your check. It's, you know, that's the thing that um, it it's probably one of the worst things they could ever do in terms of escaping the law, but it is something that they're driven to do. Yeah. You know, someone in the chat, and uh, Beth, I'm going to take your word for it. I can't um, verify this, but Beth is saying that he followed three out of the four victims on Instagram, not Ethan, because his was private. Mm-hmm. So if that's true, the dots are already being connected, you know, and this may make it easier. But what may, what would have made it easiest would have been if he made a statement. But because he's a criminal justice major, there's probably a 99 to a 100% chance that he lawyered right up. Yeah. What do you think, Dr. Debbie? Right. I, I think you're both with, again, excellent um, thoughts and, and analysis. You know, Debbie, you know why? Because we are the NYPD. I know. <laughs> I love the NYPD. You know how much I love James it. James L. Jones used to do that. He used to do a commercial for the NYPD, and with that booming voice, he would say, we are the NYPD. <laughs> Absolutely. I can't do it like his voice. He has an amazing voice. Yeah. But it's so true, uh, Sergeant Bill and Professor Mike, that that the perpology uh, deep dive into this is going to be very revealing, I think, for everyone. Will we see some, let's say, surprises? Maybe. But I do think that this individual who is narcissistic, who has these grandiose thoughts, totally thought he's not getting caught. He literally and figuratively, in his sense of, of thinking, got away with murder. So for however long, maybe, for, for four to five weeks, maybe. But But this is the part that I love in our field when our wonderfully talented, skillful men and women of, of local, state, and federal law enforcement align everything so beautifully, and then they make the right decision. I would also submit that this would be the type of person, I don't know if I want to call it a journal or a diary, but I think somewhere in the confines of his thinking, and back to what Professor Mike said about reliving through the souvenir, whether it's this knife or as Professor Mike suggests, the, the hair, the clothing, something, that he would have also written about it. Why? Because those students who tend to be on that higher level scale of scholastics, pursuing uh, you know, advanced degrees, for the most part, they enjoy the reading, the writing, the research. So I would submit we're going to find something which will be great for us in our field of crime law and justice and great for the prosecutors, wherein he did keep some kind of um, notes, let's call it, on interactions with, sightings with, whether again, it was from a distance on a social media platform or if there was ever any kind of face-to-face in in person. But I think that's forthcoming as well. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. Uh, If you're not subscribed to us, please go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell. If you want to support us, we have a Patreon with three different levels. We also have a YouTube channel membership with, count them, five different levels, and you can become part of our YouTube family. See the folks with the green font. They're part of our YouTube family, and we greatly love and like and admire all of our supporters and friends and subs on YouTube. I want to play just a little bit 
of today's press conference because as predicted, and in no way do I have a crystal ball, but I ju- I've seen this before. I knew the press conference was going to somewhat celebrate the arrest and not too much because they realized that this is the murder of four young kids, but celebrate it to the point where they could say, we, we got him, you know, we got the guy. But at, but at the same time, they weren't going to tell us anything. And they told us almost nothing in this press conference. So I'm going to play a little bit of Chief Fry because he took a lot of heat during this and he deserves uh, some credit right now. Thank you for coming today. Last night, in conjunction with the Pennsylvania State Police, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, detectives arrested 28-year-old Brian Christopher Kohlberger in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania, on a warrant for murder of Ethan, Zena, Madison, and Kaylee. I want to personally thank these agencies for their assistance in this case. Koberger resides in Pullman, Washington and is a graduate student at Washington State University. We will provide as much information as we can about the extradition to Idaho and the criminal process. However, due to Idaho state law, we are limited in what information we can release today until Koberger has been has his initial appearance in Idaho court. I want to express my appreciation to our local community, the people of Idaho and those throughout our nation who provided information to help us investigate these murders has been very impressive. We've received over 19,000 tips and we've conducted over 300 interviews. To recap this case, on the evening of November 12th, Kaylee and Madison arrived home at about 1.56 a.m after visiting a local bar and street food vendor. Ethan and Zana were at the Sigma Chi house before arriving home around 1.45 a.m. The two surviving roommates had also been in the community but returned around 1 a.m. On the morning of November 13th, a 911 call was made at 11.58 a.m. reporting an unconscious person at the residence. The call came in, call came from inside the home from one of the surviving roommate's cell phones. Moscow police responded and found two victims on the second floor and two victims on the third floor. I'm not going to play the whole press conference. I just wanted to basically show they had a press conference today. They didn't really give up much in regards to the arrest. They identified who they arrested. Um, of course, that when they opened it up to questions later on, they answered none of them. So it was like, uh, it was a little bit uh, funny that they opened it up to questions because basically the questions, of course, that everyone has was, do we know, do you know what the motive is? What was the piece, the one piece of evidence that led to the perp? He wouldn't answer that either. So we still have lots and lots of questions, but this press conference gave us no answers. But they deserved their moment in the sun. They deserved to to gloat a little bit, and they didn't gloat at all. 
over this amazing arrest that, you know, you, look, we all look back when we look back at all the different things that were said and not just by the press and not just by the community, but by online super sleuths who were like every time they saw anything, oh, that's the killer. You know, it's like, and I think just one thing that we don't do, and we 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 talk about what ifs, but we don't do f fantastic conjecturing like, oh my God, this could have happened and that could have happened. The dog knows who did it. You know, all kinds of crazy stuff like that. We try to look at the evidence and follow the evidence, but in our position, it's also difficult to look at the evidence because we don't know what all the evidence is. Professor Mike. Yeah, we, we're, we'll find out beginning uh, next week, probably the middle of next week. Um, he's going to face an extradition hearing in Pennsylvania, and that'll probably happen next Tuesday, I believe, is, is the schedule. Uh, and that's one process. He'll come back to um, Idaho, and he'll be assigned a defense attorney, and then he'll be in court, and he'll be presented with the with discoverable material, which will be the uh, search warrant, the arrest warrant, you know, all the warrants that were executed against him, along with the supporting affidavits to show uh, what drew the uh, uh, investigators to the point where they had probable cause, which would convince uh, a judge to issue the search warrant, the, and the arrest warrant, and things like that. Mike, in you know, uh, Melissa B., who's in the chat, has a question that I would like you to answer since you are the one with the law degree. Uh, why do uh, you think the cleaning process was halted by the court? That's the process of cleaning the house. Um, yeah, we. I was discussing this with my uh, daughter this afternoon, and uh, it was uh, Chief Fry had mentioned that it was halted by the uh, by the court, by the judge who was assigned to the case over in um, Pennsylvania. Uh, and asked that that be that be uh, uh, stopped. I don't even know if they actually had commenced cleaning. Um, we discussed this a couple of days ago about the touching of the crime scene and bringing back, uh, taking out actually things from the crime scene and returning to the family, which we thought was kind of a strange thing to do. Uh, we wouldn't do that in the NYPD. We would do everything intact. Um, but uh, you don't want to... Uh, alter that crime scene because now that he's under arrest um, and he's going to be coming back to uh, Idaho, he's going to have a defense attorney. That defense attorney uh, has the right to uh, go to that crime scene and examine that crime scene. And if possible, uh, he may, he or she may hire a forensic expert, maybe a retired FBI agent or someone with the state police to go and make their own sweep uh, of the crime scene. So you don't want that crime scene altered in any way. It's to, it's to be fair to Mr. Kohlberg. Okay. Infamous truth teller. And Dr. Debbie, I want you to um, comment on this after I read it. Sure. Uh, not sure if it's been discussed. The questionnaire study looking for people to answer questions about what somebody's mental state might be while committing a crime like psychology majors. And this was the, the killer's questionnaire as part of his uh, PhD program. So interesting. It's almost like he should be answering his own survey, you know? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. And um, the way I'd like to address it is with those four areas that I always like to look at first as a criminologist, 
criminology, sociology, psychology, victimology. And on this one, the psychology aspect now, we've got to ensure so that there's nothing to be compromised once this uh, goes to court and, and trial is his mental acuity. Did he understand that what he was doing was wrong and was he fully aware of what he was doing? So I say that to say this because I have been involved in cases where unfortunately it, it teetered more toward the defendant if and when he was under the influence of, let's say the hallucinogenic. But if we remove all of that and we still stay down the path of he knew what he was doing, he knew what he was doing was wrong. It's right down the list of first degree murder with the planning, the premeditation, willful purpose, malice. Then the psychology of this is that this individual is narcissistic, has grandiose tendencies, wanted to kill one or more of these victims for in totality but he wanted to do it. He planned to do it. He had a knife. He chose a day. He chose a time. He chose a location. So for me, that's the psychology. He decided to do it. He carried it out. And now our wonderful field of crime, law, and justice will ensure that the penalties will be as severe as statute will allow. Minimally, again, as we've said, four counts of first degree murder plus the burglary and or the death penalty. So I feel that's the psychology. Absolutely. Tamara Lynn, thanks. Uh, thanks for the 999 Super Chat. And thank you for your comment. Thanks for your professionalism and covering this case responsibly. I appreciate that. And as you could see, I brought on two uh, professors, one with a PhD, one with a law degree, and uh, gives me more credibility. So when I come out with Big words, you guys don't question my education, but uh, <laughs> there has to be some humor to this too, you know. One of the things that I really, I'm so interested in, because there was so much talk during this case that this could be a serial killer. And we don't know yet, he could be a serial killer. We don't know, he could be a serial killer who's never been caught, you know. He's never been arrested before. But does that mean he, but he has a lot of attributes, personality traits of a serial killer, yet it always, people always want to see when someone does a horrific crime, they, they have a horrendous arrest history. And when someone doesn't, people are like, oh my God, he's never been arrested before. And I've seen this a number of times in my homicide career. Someone does a horrific crime and you're like, what's his, what's his rap? Nothing. And you're like, what? There's no arrest? And it, it really is baffling to those of us that work in, in the policing business uh, to see someone that first time out does something so horrific. However, it does happen. Uh, Dr. Debbie, to your point, I one time went to a um, attempted murder. Actually, it would have been a murder except for the skill of an unbelievable pediatric surgeon at that was on duty at Columbia Presbyterian. Some... EDP, which a mercilessly disturbed person, stabbed uh, like a one-year-old baby in a carriage and in the in the abdomen and like ripped the knife up. He meant to kill her. Sure. And they rushed the child to Columbia Press, and on duty was um, the head of pediatric surgery, who operated on the child right in the emergency room because he had no time. When the baby was brought there, the baby was dead. 
Mm. He saved the baby's life wow. and operated like five or six more times. And to this day, the child, well, it's now an adult, is mm. he saved the girl's life and she's living a normal life right now. Which is, I, well, the point of this story was that my detective went to the EDP, the emotionally disturbed person, we used to call them psychos back in the day, and said, why did you do that? What were you doing? And the guy said, I just went out. I wanted to kill something. And that was the first thing I said. That statement was what got him tried and not the insanity plea. It yeah. showed that he understood what he was doing and he carried out what he wanted to do. So even though my detective was one of the most obnoxious humans on this earth, I I applauded him for that. I was like, Joe, that was fantastic. That was great. I'm glad you uh, have some knowledge as a detective that knew to do that. And that's what, again, saved that person. So, Dr. Debbie, what you said uh, is absolutely one hundred, and not that I was doubting what you said was true. No, but, uh, they, but I could comment further, um, Sergeant Bill, Professor Mike, it is true. I mean, that is one of the courses that I have taught for many years, serial and mass murder, where we do the deep dive into the cases and into the perpology. Uh, am I saying that right? Perpology? Herpology, yes. Herpology, okay, per Sergeant Bell. And we really take a look at all of that. And as many of the viewers know, I'm, I'm coming to know them and, and so astute and, and knowledgeable. People will kill for the thrill. We do have those types of people who truly have some kind of pleasure upon inflicting just horrendous, horrific pain. And if we do a little deeper dive into the psychology of that, why? Because that individual's in complete control and gets to make the decisions between life and death. So we do have um, many in that classification of mass murderers, serial murderers, and even a single murder uh, involved in so many cases that it astonishes me even so. With, with all that we know in our field and, and all that we try to contribute with, with our own you know, knowledge and, and such, but people will do that and they absolutely know what they're doing. They know what they're doing is wrong. So thankfully our criminal justice system ensures that their pun punishments and penalties are severe. Absolutely. Jennifer Coleman, thank you for the $10 super chat. She says, please listen to the video going around from Trev757. I was in the room when potential killer called and taunted us dead serious. Well, I'll try to uh, I'll try to listen to that when when we get off the air. One of the things I'm Mary Callahan. Uh, thank you for the 499 super chat. The New York Post reported that after his arrest, he asked, "Has anyone else been arrested? Why would he ask that?" I have a theory on that. I think he's trying to throw off the investigation. I think there is no other perp, but he's. He's a wise ass and he's smart and he's trying to throw off the investigation. But will the police stop at that? No, they're going to keep investigating this. Uh, some folks in the chat said they're still asking for tips. Yeah, and that's part of this perpology. Oh, by the way, in New York City, cops aren't allowed to use the word perpetrator anymore with the with the new political correctness. So I would think my, my uh, perpology will be banned in New York City where it was invented. Uh, Professor Mike. Yeah, the uh, the comment about the uh, second person possibly being arrested, it could be that to throw them off, or if if not, it, it could be that there may have been someone who may have inadvertently helped him, a friend, 
that he might have called. And this is where getting his cell phone records to see who he'd been texting uh, in the past couple of days. It, it's possible he might have taken a ba- uh, the uh, the knife, put into a bag and dropped it off at a friend's house and said, please, don't even look in this. Just put this in your garage. It's possible. Maybe he's got the feeling that that person may have uh, given him up, perhaps. Um, we won't know that for a while, but um, that would be interesting to see if there was possibly a person who may have in- inadvertently was uh, a factor in maybe allowing him to get all the way to Pennsylvania or help him get all the way to Pennsylvania and hide out, um, which would show that there was, it, it goes to the consciousness of guilt as Dr. Goodman's talking about. Um, if that, if that is true, that would go to the uh, consciousness of guilt angle, which would show that he was perfectly capable and in control of his emotions and cold and calculating. Yeah. And if I may also back to Sergeant Bill, the, the whole idea of him asking, uh, oh, was somebody else arrested? I think that is very wise what you've just submitted, that he's trying to deflect responsibility and culpability. And that word, I like that word when we talk about vocab because, cul- right, Professor Mike is smiling. Yeah. <laughs> we use that word a lot in the classroom and in the courtroom and, and in real life. And, and how blameworthy is this person? I think 100 percent blameworthy. Did somebody uh, threaten him to somehow participate in this? Of course not. So the culpability for me thus far is absolutely at 100 plus. You know, Dr. Debbie, one of the things I I think of an investigation um, is something called mind mapping, is where you, you take all the traits of a human, you start out in the middle of a page and you just keep writing everything you know about them. Yes. And I think they call it data mining when it's done by a computer. So yeah. I'm dating myself calling it mind That's mapping. Okay. But Even data analytics, but a lot of times like <laughs> when you, know, you do that and when you put all of that information, you could find the answer to a murder in that and I call it perpology or victimology. Yeah. And somewhere in that huge amount of data could be the answer or answers to the question. And, I, I, you know, I'm, there also is, you know, could be hundreds or thousands of, of little criteria involving someone's life. You know, where does the person live? Uh, who's the person's siblings? What's their mother and father? Do they own a car? What kind of car do they own? Where's their job? Who, who, who do they work with? You know, after you, if you put all that stuff on a blackboard, after a while, there's no more space on the blackboard. And again, somewhere is the answer to your question in the data mining or mind mapping. Absolutely. And in my own way, Sergeant Bill and and Professor Mike, I do that within the first couple of hours of of knowing of of a case like this. And and I've mentioned it. I, I do the criminology, sociology, psychology, victimology. So as we know, criminology is the why. Why did this individual do what he did? Why did he select the knife he selected, the victims, the day, the time, the location, all of the why? We don't know yet, but we believe in our field. We trust our law enforcement experts. They may know. Maybe they know as we speak. It just has not been revealed for you know, purposes of maintaining the integrity of the case. And then we move over to sociology. See, when I start to think about the sociology of the killer, I'm thinking about what is going on in this individual's world, 
even though we know sociology in and of itself, all the dynamics happening in society. But what's happening in, in his world? Is he a student? Does he work? Is there an intimate partner? Uh, was he laid off from work? Is he having financial struggles? You know, there's always that tipping point, as we know. And then back to the psychology, the mental health, and, and on the mental health scale, does he really have any kind of, um, you know, valid classification, let's say, of uh, psychosis, neurosis, schizophrenia? We'll see. Law enforcement will do their due diligence and, and do those testings. And, and then, of course, the, uh, the victimology here, as we say, uh, how and when and why did this group of four decedents become the selected choice for him? Well, you know, Dr. Debbie, we connected the dots and folks in the chat. Thank you for that, for telling us that he was friends with three of the victims on Instagram. I mean, right there, there's a nexus. And we love you. There's another word I'm going to put in the canonism dictionary, nexus. Uh, yeah, but, we love when there's a nexus between but, a perpetrator. Right. Sergeant Bill, I may hesitate to use the terminology, if you don't mind, of friend. You know, what does that mean? Was he really a friend? Was he an acquaintance? Or was he somebody enamored by somebody? It's possible. Maybe they were friends. Maybe he did come to the home for socialization. It's well, Dr. Debbie, if you're on social media, do you consider someone you friend on Facebook your friend? Right. I don't. I don't. For the most part, I don't. You know, yeah. I may have 2,000 people follow me on Facebook. I don't know half of them, you know? Right. Well, I'll agree to that. So I'm on very limited social media platforms. I am on LinkedIn and several of your viewers are connecting and following and I get a lot of questions and I do take an hour or two each day to answer questions or things that individuals want to discuss. So I'm more than happy to do that. But are they friends? You know, for me, the friend is that close inner circle individual. Do we have acquaintances? Of course we do. We all do. And then I think then there's another category of associates, people who may know of us, about us, individuals that we may know about. But my feeling is this individual is more of a detached associate. Absolutely. Troy Superstar, thank you for the five pounds uh, super chat. Why is there a supposition of guilt? This police has not been the most competent. Where is the balance, innocence, and proven guilty? Look, that is what we all accept as Americans. That is the standard. Anyone that is charged, you're arrested based on probable cause. That absolutely does not mean you're guilty. However, can we have our day in the sun for one day? All right. Four people were slaughtered and someone was arrested for it. Just to establish probable cause is not an easy thing to do, especially in a case like this. So you're right. A defendant is innocent until proven guilty, but we're going to just today to believe and to really trust the fact that they have the right person in this case. Professor Mike. Yes, it is true that they have the uh, pres uh, presumption of innocence and the burden of proof of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt is, is the courtroom standard even higher, as you know, when you get into court. Uh, is totally on the um, st the state's attorney, the uh, county attorney. In this case, um, we'll know a lot more about what the police, what what evidence that the police had to convince them, and then to convince a judge to to issue the search warrant and the arrest warrant based on probable cause. 
Uh, but on, but while he's in the courtroom, until the uh, trial is over, he enjoys the, the, the presumption of innocence. Um, so we're going to find out more as we go on. And we're, we're going to be, you know, the idea that the, the crime scene is going to is not going to be touched is is part of that. It's, it's his due process right under the 14th Amendment. And you don't want and they're being very, very reticent in giving out information. And part of that is to protect his due process rights. He'll if this goes to court and a trial, you don't want to taint the jury pool by having them hear leaked evidence before they actually hear about it in a court of law during the trial. So, yes, he has the uh, maintains that presumption of innocence. Um, and it is completely up to the prosecutor to bear the burden of proof of every element of the crime, the corpus delecti, every element of the crime beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury of his peers. Yes, and I do agree with Professor Mike. That is absolutely the platform and, and sound reasoning, always innocent until proven guilty. And, and just another mention of what Professor Mike said about the, um, the crime scene. Remember, um, and even Sergeant Bill, you and I had a side chat about that. Like, why would there be this, this rush before the announcement to clean the house? You know, I've been involved in a case here in Florida almost five years. And again, I don't like to use the, the name of the, uh, the murderer, but, but the Parkland shooter and, and a school-based horrific uh, crime and 17 decedents. But as we recall with that case, the the actual building of which this, this atrocity, horrendous uh, mass shooting occurred was maintained as the crime scene and was not touched and was not tampered with. So I would submit I didn't agree with a preceding decision to clean that house. I didn't see the need to do so and to preserve it as the crime scene. Look, there were many things that the Moscow police did that we as NYPD disagreed with. And we and we voiced our disapproval. And there's folks in the chat saying I owe an apology to my I apologize to no one. I I made predictions based on my experience, and some of the things that the Moscow police did made no sense. And I also did criticize them for their inexperience, and that's undeniable. So, you know, something if you don't like what I do, you know, you don't have to stay here. But I'm coming from 27 years of law enforcement. I have a master's degree in, in uh, from John Jay College in security management. So I, it's not like I'm not talking from an educated background. And 27 years on the uh, NYPD is like dog years, too. So times it by seven. <laughs> but uh, look, we go with real information and what real investigations. And yeah, I criticize the Moscow police and I'll do it again in the next big case. Another police department is doing things against what I think is proper. And that's what we do in this podcast. Uh, I'm not going to like, you know, we don't do things and say, oh my God, look at that and, and create stuff. But we go where the evidence takes us and what should be done from a police perspective based on our experience. And that's other podcast. Don't do that, but that's what we do. Uh, Professor Debbie, Dr. Debbie. I'm fine with either one or Debbie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Um, you know, I try to reserve the, the critiques and the criticism because I feel that we have reached a very significant level in this case. We're nowhere near done, but absolute 
congratulations and kudos to the men and women directly involved in in this enormity of, of finding the individual. And again, back to the word right, who they believe is the right individual, the suspect, the killer on this based on the knowledge and the information. But I think we also want to compliment those individuals who had the courage. And I think it's a courageous act when those in society sent in the nearly 20,000 tips we don't know yet what is the tipping point for this individual and for how law enforcement decided it was this individual, but it could very well be from those submissions that were made. And guess what? We all heard today from the chief, from the director, from the uh, prosecutor, still that call to action. And I think that's still going to be a very important component that if somebody still knows something preceding these these atrocities or somehow during the time frame, call it in, send it in, because it could again be something of, of great significance, even though the individual who may know something thinks that it's minutia or, or somehow minuscule to the totality of the case. Absolutely. Folks, if you're looking for a great attorney in New York City metropolitan area, then Joe Murray is your man. He's a retired NYPD police officer, and he knows both sides of the fence. You can give him a call at 718-514-3855. You can email him at joe at jmurray-law.com. He has a website, jmurray-law.com. Joe Murray's a huge supporter of Police Off the Cuff, and uh, he's uh, he's been with us almost since the beginning. You know, I, I just want to make another point, and of course... Dr. Debbie, what you're talking about goes right hand in hand with the perpology. They're going to be building that perpology and finding out everything they can possibly know about, about this person. I would really like now to hear some of these FBI behavioral analysis talk about now that they know this is the person arrested, let's talk about who is he now? Who is he? Professor Mike. Yeah, this is what you want to know. Um, who is he and is he a loner? My guess is he's probably not the most affable person, a real, um, you know, uh, you know, slap you on the back, give you a hug kind of person with a thousand social butterfly friends. I think he's probably a very intense young man, most likely a loner, very few um, close, close associates, close friends. And, um, and probably that made it easier for him to commit this sort of crime because you have to steal yourself to do this. And he did, and he, and he almost got away with it. Um, and I just want to mention one thing about the, uh, the crime scene, if I may, Bill. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, we, when they started removing uh, some of the personal objects, like two weeks ago from the crime scene, before they even began to discuss cleaning it, you and I and, and uh, Phil were kind of appalled because we would not do that in New York City. And as Dr. Goodman pointed out, you would not do that. You would keep that crime scene as pristine as you possibly could so that a defense attorney could in the future have the right to go in themselves and actually have someone examine that crime scene. The only thing I could think of is that perhaps that is that is their protocol and that is something that they have done in the past with other crime scenes that they've dealt with. And so therefore, it might seem really odd to us. And, and basically, you know, nothing that we would actually ever do or even consider doing. It may be something that has been done 
in in the town of Moscow or maybe in numerous police departments actually in Idaho. It's possible. That's, mm -hmm. that's the only thing I could think of. You know, Mike, throughout this case, because there was not a lot of information given out to the public, of which we are part of the public, even though we're professionals, uh, former professionals in law enforcement, it led to a lot of conjecture and a lot of educated guesses, hypotheses, hypothesizing. You know, I used to say that to my detectives, stop hypothesizing and start typerizing your reports, you know, and uh, I always use that joke. Anyway, so there, it led to a lot of conjecture, some that was so far off the wall. Like, I mean, when we think of all the different people that were huge suspects in the case that really weren't, and people got really upset that the police said, oh, we cleared that guy. Oh, that's too fast. You know, like, what, well, what, how, what time frame should we use? Your time frame or our time frame? We're the professionals. We interviewed this guy. You don't like it, and you're making up stuff about, you know, we had the, the, the guy, the food truck guy, who was the same guy who walked them to the food truck. We had the infamous bartender, Adam, who turned out to be nothing. I mean, I think one of the reporter, one of the broadcasters on News Nation said, and the infamous, well, how is he infamous? He's a bartender. He didn't do anything, you know? So that type of reporting. And then, of course, uh, from the internet sleuths, look at the case where the, one of them is accusing one of the professors of being the perp mm. on TikTok. So there's a lot of, and that the neighbor who, who was walking around who's going to law school right now, right away, everyone online said, oh, he's the killer, you know, like yeah. with no evidence. But so I think in the future, you know, we have to be careful. We, we try to be careful just at pointing fingers at people that can totally destroy their lives just based on someone on the internet that thinks it's that person suspicious. Dr. Debbie. Mm. Yeah, excellent point. So I think when it comes to individuals' thoughts, decision-making, well, why are they doing this and why aren't they doing that and why is this one ruled out and I'm certain that this is the one who did it. I mean, I think in a contributory way, for the most part, it has been positive where individuals have submitted what they think might be something of, of worth and value in solving the case. But then the negative side, right, two sides to the coin, th this other side that you're discussing can really create a, a level of not only is it disrespectful to say that somebody's a killer, a murderer, but but now if we introduce the law here, you you there's possibly this defamation of, of character and, and one's reputation, which I think for all of us and our, and our viewers is, is priceless. And, and sometimes we're simply convicted in the, in the courtroom of public opinion when it's not valid. So I do like to stay in the lane, if you will, of, of fact-based data, data analytics, things that are valid, that then our law enforcement experts and officials can investigate all that they've done to now lead us to the individual who they maintain is the killer. Absolutely. Folks, you know something, I could stay on for another hour, but I don't think we, uh, I don't think our, our subs and our followers might want that, but we'll be on this case again. And what's fascinating to me about this case, and again, kudos to the Moscow police. I criticized them during this case and I'll criticize another police department down the road. Uh, the FBI, the Idaho State Police, 
uh, the Fugitive Enforcement Division. Law enforcement sometimes can be a thankless job. I hope they're out tonight having a few drinks and celebrating this victory for them because they, God knows they took enough criticism during this case. Uh, Professor Mike, final thoughts. Um, I think uh, the F- the FBI, the uh, state, you know, the state police and the Moscow Police Department did a fabulous job working together. It's very difficult, as you know, working with the feds uh, and then have a state unit, a federal unit, and also a local unit working together uh, is tremendous. Uh, Chief Fry is, uh, you know, he brought the, the state police in and the FBI in very quickly. He did a lot of smart things. We may disagree with some of the other things he has done, but overall, they played their cards close to their vest, and they did that for a particular purpose, and will that'll be more revealed more in the future. But um, this investigation actually moved from a police point of view, actually moved along very quickly. I know that's the public might not believe that, but this kind of thing with four four uh, uh, victims and not a lot of you know tremendous amount of DNA all over the place, and a person who's not been uh, fingerprinted or had their DNA in CODIS, they moved fast on this. And I think people should kind of just step back and appreciate the fact that, yeah, even a small town police department, which doesn't have a lot of, uh, you know, uh, experience with with homicides, uh, when you team them up with like the state police or the FBI, they can accomplish great things very quickly. So kudos to them. And they did accomplish something great very quickly. Dr. Debbie, final thoughts. And uh, before you give your final thoughts, I just want to thank you for coming on the show tonight. Uh, I look at the chat and, uh, you know, people love my guests more than they love me. I don't know. (laughs) I'm going to have to get off this show and let you guys run the show and just have uh, Professor Mike and Dr. Debbie. (laughs) Well, as always, Sergeant Bill, and I still want to recognize Detective Phil. I know he's not on with us, but... Again, as always, just just the pleasure, the the privilege of participating in the conversation. And although I'm I'm first meeting Professor Mike, but every time I'm watching the show and all that that you do and and your intellect is is just wonderful and, and so prudent and wise and appreciation for all that you do. And as well to the viewers who again are are very mindful and astute and caring and kind to ensure that there will be resolution. So I would say there's resolution, of course, in part, but not in full. Yes, it's a celebratory day. It's a day for, you know, again, the the thanks and the gratitude of of our men and women who are directly involved in in this case, but also thanks, if I may, to our nearly 1 million local, state, and, and federal sworn officers and agents in our country who who do a fantastic job every day to ensure the safety, the security, the survival. So we're at a point that is definitely significant and and recognized, but more to come as the revelations will be made, as as we've discussed, who is the person and, and the deep dive into the individual and the motivation and all that's to come. But again, the encouragement of our community members who know anything to continue that call to action that was made by the chief, Chief Fry. And uh, I believe strongly justice has been and will continue to be um, served on this case. So thank you. I agree, Dr. Debbie. Just my final thoughts very quickly. 
I just want to give uh, prayers out to the victims and to the yes. victims' families, even though this day uh, is a is a good day as far as that someone was arrested that committed this heinous crime. It doesn't bring back their loved ones. From Police Off the Cuff, I'm Bill Cannon. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. On behalf of Professor Mike Geary and Dr. Debbie Goodman, have a great night and God bless. Thank you. So just ain't enough